Well, hello everybody. It is good to be here and I want to thank the EU for having me this week. It was actually when I was at EU that we started the Thursday public meeting, so it's kind of fun uh, to be here now. Um, the EU, though, have asked me to speak about gender this week uh, and it's been hard to shake the feeling that this might actually be quite a bad idea. Uh, after all, who am I to do this talk? I'm a young, white, religious man. Honestly, what could be worse? Don't I represent every single barrier to progress as far as gender is concerned? Well, in a way, I do. I'm not old, so that's, I'm not that old. But it's not just me that's the problem, of course. This is too big a topic, isn't it, to do in one week. What can we usefully do about this? Is anybody here doing gender studies? Yes, it's a degree length or more subject. So what good is one talk going to do? Still, here we are. Uh, and the reason is that I think there's still something that I can usefully do in one talk, which is to give you a bit of a sense, a framework, of how the Bible kind of leads us to think about gender. Uh, but I make no apologies for the fact that this is going to be fairly dense and heavy duty. Uh, although I do apologise for the fact that there's no outline, but I'll flag that on the way through. But of course, for some of you here, this is all still a bit rich. Uh, because after all... My reading of the Bible will be influenced by the assumptions that I bring to it, uh, the set of spectacles that I bring as a young, white, religious man. Uh, And that's true, actually, that we all bring an agenda to the text. But if we believe in reading at all, and certainly if we're Christians and we believe God has given us an authoritative text, we've got to believe that the influence can go both ways and that this text in particular can reshape our thinking. And so even if you're a bit sceptical, can I invite you to listen today, if only to see what reading the Bible has done to a young white religious man. Well, let me begin by clarifying what we're talking about. The issue of gender is really about the social significance, if there is any, of male-female sexual difference. Uh, By social, I just mean in our relationships with other people. And I'm taking for granted that there is a basic biological distinction between men and women, that can be a starting point for us and that this is true even though there are cases where this distinction is confused uh, such as when people are born with abnormal or undeveloped genitalia. They're difficult cases especially for the people who suffer them but they shouldn't stop us starting at this point. So gender is about the social significance of this basic distinction between men and women. It seems to me that we live in a culture that is really very confused about this issue. Uh, On the one hand, we live in the wake of the success of the feminist arguments that dominated the 1960s and 70s. We now take for granted such things as that men and women should be paid the same amount for doing the same job. And, you know, nobody's particularly worried about women wearing trousers or being engineers anymore. Uh, People used to be worried about that, by the way, but not anymore, and rightly so. Um, There are, of course many ways in which we haven't kind of met those ideals, women are still not always paid the same amount and so on, but hardly anybody's out there arguing that that's how it should be. But on the other hand, difference has returned. It's made a bit of a comeback. You can see this at a popular level whenever you watch just even an hour of TV. We're faced with ads that present gender stereotypes of the most ridiculous simplicity. Uh, dads who can't cook, mums who nag dads who forget things. 
Every single ad for washing detergent features a woman. Every single ad for a hardware store or an auto store features a man. A dumb man. (laughs) And um, wife swap. Are you kidding me? Wife swap. But this is, it's all there. It's part of the cultural soil that we grow up in. But this popular commitment to difference, or at least popular kind of awareness of it, is backed up by a whole raft of literature uh, which talks about the differences between men and women. Books with titles like The Essential Difference and Brain Sex, if anybody's read any of them. And they, they discover things like the male brain and the female brain and they give evidence for things like the empathic advantage of women and the heightened spatial awareness of men. Now, of course, there are other voices out there shouting out that this is really all a lot of crap. Uh, One example is this book, Delusions of Gender by Cordelia Fine. I'll just stand here so I don't get in the way. Uh, this This is a merciless demolition of a lot of the pseudoscience of gender difference. Uh, She shows that many of the purportedly biological differences between men and women are no such thing, but are really just dependent on social assumptions and cultural stereotypes. It's great fun, actually, uh, and I recommend it if you want just a fun read about gender. And she undoubtedly has... (laughs) There you go. I'm not kidding. It's quite funny. Um, She undoubtedly has a point about many of the ideas she lampoons. Uh, and many of the books she gets stuck into. Yet there's still something inadequate, isn't there, about the claim that gender differences are all just an illusion. Because the fact is that wherever they come from, we all have to live with them. This is why books like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus do actually sell. More importantly, the fact is that different statistics about men and women keep popping up. It's all very well to argue that there's no essential biological male tendency to be aggressive, for example, and perhaps that's true, perhaps it's not, but it would be completely crazy to try to address the issue of domestic violence without paying attention to gender. The fact is we all experience differences between men and women, and even if they're not innate, natural, we still have to live with them. But it's more complex even than this. Because there are others who disagree with an approach like Cordelia Fines at a deeper level. Um, to get a bit nerdy for a second, a lot of postmodern feminist scholarship has been really dissatisfied with some of the assumptions underlying earlier feminism. Uh, a number of writers have suggested that an emphasis, an emphasis on the sameness of men and women is actually inadequate because it can lead us to minimise the distinctive being and contribution of women as women. Uh, The Belgian philosopher Luce Irigaray, for example, uh, she has campaigned against the idea of a masculine neutral gender. Here she is talking about, I won't read this whole quote, but she's getting stuck into unisex citizens. And she concludes here by saying, woman, therefore, that's the she, therefore needs her own linguistic, religious and political values. She needs to be situated and valued to be she in relation to herself. Women are women, you see, is Irigaray's point. She's not Christian, by the way, just in case you're wondering. And she must be, a woman must be able to know herself as such and not just as the same as men. 
Now, thinkers like Luce Irigaray would just vomit if they read the kind of pop sex difference literature that Cordelia Fine hates. But they alert us to something real, which is that this difference really might matter. So we're confused. On the one hand, it's clear that many, perhaps even all, of the differences between men and women that we experience owe their existence to social conventions and stereotypes. But on the other hand, the reality is that we still have to live with these differences. And, and of course, it's not all an illusion. There really is this fundamental distinction. And surely it, it, it's fair enough to think it could mean something. Well, I think the Bible's teaching about men and women can really help us both to understand the issue of gender in a more complex way, but more importantly than understanding it, can free us to live into it creatively and wonderfully. So, uh, let me take you through what the Bible has to say about gender. I want to do that under three headings, if you're looking for headings. Creation, corruption and redemption. Let's start with the Bible does with creation. The opening chapters of the Bible offer a wonderful account of the nature of humanity as male and female, as one and two. Look at with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This move from the singular, him, to the plural, them, is there in the Hebrew original. And it's a beautiful way of holding together the way in which humanity is both one and two. Uh, English just doesn't have a, a, a singular word which is gender neutral. But there's no sense here of the two-ness being bad or a difficulty. It is in fact the form in which humanity will image God in the world. And what immediately follows from this is a shared task. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now this is important for us for two reasons. One is that there's no sense that this is man's task that woman is just tacked onto. This is a shared task. The second reason is that this reminds us that creation is not static. Now what do I mean by that? I mean that God does not create something that is finished in the sense that it has nowhere to go. God finishes his work of creation, but creation is not meant to remain as it is. Humankind has a task to do, and creation has a purpose to unfold, and that's there right from the beginning. God creates a world with potential. Now, these two ideas, unity and distinction of humanity, and the potentiality of creation, they're, they're in the second creation account as well, which we read before. That was depicted differently there. Uh, there, as we saw, the task is described in terms of working and taking care of the garden. Eve is described as Adam's helper in this task. Um, now, if we are uncomfortable about that, I think it's not because the text itself expresses inequality. The phrase used is a helper as its partner. And it's a wonderful way of expressing the fact that Eve is Adam's equal without being his clone. It, it means equality but not identity. 
and she will share Adam's task. She shares it together with him. She's a helper in the task. Now, there is here an idea of priority, I think, of order. Adam is created first, and Adam names Eve. But in the Bible, priority, order, does not imply inequality. Um, We might find that hard to believe, but I think that is the Bible's view. Priority does not mean superiority. And the text as as a whole is just focused on the beauty of this situation, the mutuality of man and woman. When when Adam meets Eve, it's this exclamation of delight. Ah, she's perfect, bone of my bone, and, and equal without being the same. And what the text shows us is that there is something far better than... I'm dropping in and out a bit. Please just live with that if you can. I'm finding it crazy. But... um. The text just asks us to, 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 to see that there's something better than sameness. There is a possibility here of unity. Uh, and this leads to the comment about marriage. For this reason, we're told, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will be united together and will become one flesh. The text is not embarrassed about difference. It's the best way it is. Now, this comment about marriage also brings us back to the fact that creation has a purpose to unfold. Humanity is designed to go somewhere. And also, it reminds us that this purpose can't happen except socially. Humanity is created to fill the world and to subdue it through marriages, families, clans, peoples, through the development of society. Now, why does that matter? It matters for this reason. One of the things lying behind the cultural confusion I described at the beginning is a a way of thinking about what is natural. Let me explain. Uh, Much of our thinking about gender takes the form of arguments about whether differences between men and women are natural on the one hand or socially constructed on the other. And the reason we feel that that distinction matters is because it has moral connotations. Like, I could put a diagram up like this. If you can show something, some difference to be natural, then it's morally important. But if you can show something to be socially constructed, then we can ignore it. Uh, We've seen this in Cordelia Fine's arguments. She tries to show that all the purportedly natural differences are in fact no such thing. And her argument works because if she's right, we can ignore them. By the same token, the books she criticised make the same argument in in reverse. They try to show that differences between men and women are biological, are natural, sorry, over here, and so we've got to pay attention to them. But this dichotomy, with its moral implications, is part of the reason we're in the confusion we're in today. Because what it's led to is it's undermined our ability to say anything substantial about what the difference between men and women entails. Because as Cordelia Fine so wittily puts it, pick a gender difference, any difference, now watch very closely as, poof, it's gone. (laughs) See, it's all very well to point out that men and women have different bits. I mean, that's true, but it's not very impressive discovery. It's quite another thing to go on to say anything substantial about what that means or entails for social relations. What if, though, what if this dichotomy is a mistake? What if the relationship between what's natural and cultural is not a clear-cut either-or, but is more complicated than that? Um, 
The English theologian John Milbank has called this dichotomy the biopolitical illusion. And he says, we kind of have in our minds this idea that human beings are, are wild, natural beings on the one hand and artificial cultural beings on the other. When the truth is, as he puts it, that human beings are cultural animals. Beings who are, whose nature it is to survive through the development of culture. And I think this is in fact the conclusion that the Christian doctrine of creation leads you to. Because the Bible's presentation is not that there is this underlying foundation of natural and then everything built on top of that is kind of a bummer. The Bible's presentation is that creation is meant to unfold and so cultural development is natural in a sense. That's part of the way God made the world to be. Now this is an important point because it means that just showing that some idea about gender is, is socially constructed, that is not enough to make it morally irrelevant because creation's development is not unnatural but in fact how things were meant to be. And so socially constructed answers to the question of what sexual difference means are in fact the only kind of answers we're ever going to get. Okay, that's a, a big thought but I just want to clear something up. That definitely does not mean that all socially constructed answers are therefore natural and good. That would be to make the mistake of only reading the first two chapters of the Bible. But as the story of the Bible unfolds, we have immediately the tragedy of the fall. Humanity rebels against God in a perverse desire to be their own rulers. And it has terrible consequences for creation. We see those consequences first in God's pronouncement of of the consequences. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now these are enigmatic words and understanding them today is beyond us. But at the very least, the bottom half of this implies that gender relations will be a point at which the distortion introduced in the world because of human sin, uh, point, gender relations are a point at which this will be especially obvious. The words desire and rule imply a struggle now between the man and the woman for dominance and distorted by urges. Now, in the narrative in Genesis that follows, our I think our attention is actually drawn to this point. Uh, we're introduced very quickly to a man named Lamech. If you get the chance, read Genesis 4. It's a really interesting Hebrew narrative. And we're told, and this is the kind of subtle way Hebrew narratives make points, we're told that Lamech had two wives. And what, we, what this means is that something's going wrong. Moreover, we're told that he speaks to his wives like this. Verse 23. Adar and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Now, why is it to his wives that he says that? Why do his wives need to hear it? And actually, the text kind of highlights the fact that it's to his wives. What the text is showing us is, I think, how the mutuality of male and female has been corrupted 
woman has become valued as a commodity rather than a companion. And she is kept in fear by the, the threat of brutality and violence. Now, tellingly, it's with Lamech's children that we see the development of culture. He has these sons, Jabal, Jubal and Tubal Cain, and they're the founders of practices of organised farming and music and metalwork. And what this reminds us is that all our cultural answers to the question of gender are answers attempted under conditions of corruption. And so although, as we concluded before, we can't write off cultural ideas about gender just because they're socially constructed, we also have to be very hesitant about them. The Bible can't be taken as just affirming socialised gender roles. In fact, if anything, I think the Bible should lead us to expect every idea about what it means to be a man or a woman to be damaged to a greater or lesser extent. And it should make us hesitate before being too confident about what is a helpful version of what it is to be a man or a woman and what isn't. Because the Bible testifies to a radical and perverse distortion of this relationship. Now, before I go on, we need to hear that point. Uh, I spoke about our culture under the heading of confusion, but the fact is, this is far too generous. Our world is still characterised by a pervasive and ugly sexism, which uh, is, is, is really horrific, whether, whether through the proliferation of pornography and sexual harassment, or through the normalisation of practices like going to strip clubs. There's, there's an ugly sexism in our world. And the Bible gives us a powerful key for understanding it and not pretending it away. Something has gone wrong. Humanity has rejected God and the beautiful gift that is the mutuality of man and woman has been badly warped, almost beyond recognition, into a relationship characterised by dominance, fear and pain. Thankfully, though, I don't get to end the talk there uh, because in the story of the Bible, the tragedy of the fall is overcome in the redemption that God brings into the world through Jesus. And so we need to go on to ask, what does the New Testament say about gender? What happens to the issue of gender because of Jesus? Well, on the one hand, what we see in the New Testament is that the issue of gender is radically relativised because of Jesus. Uh, we see this first, I think, in the life of Jesus himself. Now, you don't want to make too much of the interactions Jesus has with women because we don't really have enough information, but they are striking. They're striking because they don't seem to be very to do with gender at all. He doesn't seem to care about that very much. The English writer Dorothy L. Sayers was really struck by this and she said this long quote, which I'm not going to read, but she concludes that there is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. See, Jesus saw women as equally subjects of the kingdom of God as men. And this is the radical idea that unfolds elsewhere in the New Testament. Listen to what... Sorry if you didn't get to read that, but Dorothy L. Sayers is great. Don't just read her detective stuff. There you go. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. As many of you as were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The difference between men and women, you see, is radically relativised. There is an important sense in which what has happened in Jesus means that distinctions are abolished. There is no longer male and female. That's a radical statement. Something profound has changed because of Jesus. But on the other hand, the New Testament clearly does not dispense with the idea of there being socially significant differences between men and women. In fact, what we find is that the reality of the goodness of male and female difference is upheld and in fact reaffirmed in the New Testament. Thus, we have passages that speak of the obligation of wives to uh, submit to their husbands and of husbands to honour their wives. And we have um, certain responsibilities in the church being reserved for men and others for women. This is stuff we tend to find hard today, but the New Testament is unembarrassed about it. The reality of male-female difference is not abolished because of Jesus. It is reaffirmed. Well, how how do we make sense of this? Well, it's tempting to understand the relationship between these two ideas, relativization and reaffirmation, in terms of tension. And there's a conflict and we've got to hold them together somehow. But that, I think, would be to misunderstand what's actually going on here. At stake is the issue of what redemption means. Let me give you two versions of an answer uh, Two versions of an answer to the question, what does Jesus do to creation? One version is he takes us back to the garden. He restores creation to what it was. The other answer is he takes us forward beyond creation, leaving it behind along with all the mess. But the true answer, of course, is neither of those and both of them. Jesus restores creation by perfecting it. If you think of creation as like a tree, Jesus doesn't take creation back to its first shoot from the seed, he brings it to its full-grown perfection. Uh, Now, that's just an image. It's not a perfect image. But it helps us understand um, what happens. And that's why the truth is that it's precisely the relativization of gender in the New Testament that makes possible the reaffirmation of it. I'll say it again. It's precisely the way in which the distinctions are relativized that makes it possible for them to be reaffirmed. The awareness of how the distinction between men and women has been put in the shade by the dawning of God's kingdom actually makes it possible to reaffirm that difference as something good and to seek to live in it in the midst of a broken world. And this is in fact what we find going on in the New Testament itself. In the, passage that, in the passages that uphold the significance of this difference. Now, we don't have time today, obviously, to look at all of them, so I thought I'd just take you to what is probably the most difficult one for us and show you that there's more going on than we usually think. Have a look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
Do not adorn yourselves outwardly by braiding your hair and by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing. Rather, let your adornment be the inner self with the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. It was in this way long ago that the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You have become her daughters as long as you do what is good and never let fears terrify you. Husbands, in the same way, show consideration for your wives in your life together as the weaker sex, paying honour to them as co-heirs of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing may hinder your prayers. Okay, it's a tricky passage. In order to understand it, though, we've got to imagine ourselves into a highly patriarchal culture. Peter's advice to wives seems to be aimed particularly at wives whose husbands were not Christians and who lived under the same threats that women so often experience. And he encourages them. That's why he speaks in verse 6 about not letting fears terrify them. He encourages them to do essentially two things, to submit to the authority of their husbands and to cultivate a beautiful character rather than a beautiful exterior. Now, to submit to authority does represent an acknowledgement of a legitimate order in marriage. Uh, That's not just a cultural thing, I don't think. Peter's saying that is a good thing. But what Peter is urging them, we've got to notice, is to submit to it freely rather than fighting against it. And moreover, the purpose of their submission is with an end in view that the husband didn't choose so that he will become a Christian. The exhortation to adorn yourselves inwardly, though, is really important and really very countercultural. And just because we don't like the idea of a gentle and quiet spirit, it doesn't mean what Peter's doing here is not powerful. Because there's no doubt that in that age, as in our own, there was pressure upon women to highlight and exploit their physical beauty to doll themselves up with finery just as we get spray tans and breast enhancements. And Peter calls Christian women to reject that, no doubt to the frustration of some of their husbands. And to instead pay attention, that's because husbands can be jerks, and to instead pay attention to their character, motivated by their spiritual convictions. It's an exhortation that takes the wives profoundly seriously. The exhortation to husbands, too, though it offends our, our sensibilities, is likewise striking in the call to pay honour to the wife as co-heirs of the grace of life. Heirs, of course, is something women have tended not to be, but heirs of the kingdom they are because they, too, are children of God. Now, Peter's mention of the weaker sex, I think, is the kind of statement of the obvious that is only possible in a culture that just is not sensitised to this issue, not in the least. And if you pointed out to Peter that actually women can endure kinds of pain that men can't and they tend to live longer, I think Peter would have gone, oh, yeah, sure, sorry, I didn't mean to deny that, but maybe there's still something worth affirming given that in most marriages the husband is stronger and he should see that as an opportunity not for exploitation but for care. What we have in 1 Peter here, I think, is actually a call to a practice that dismantles distorted cultural ideas of gender from within. 
without rejecting what's good about the difference between men and women. That slowly and subtly undermines male sexism by gradually establishing patterns of relating based on mutual respect and the recognition that there is an ultimate horizon of equality in the kingdom of God. This is not the practice that our culture demands and it might not have been the practice we were hoping for but it is a remarkable practice. In fact, what we see here I think is, is, is a way of living that is in a, in a profound way one of freedom. This may seem ridiculous, but I think it's true. Because what we see here is a way of life that is anchored in the profound security that comes from knowing that you have been loved and accepted and that your future is eternally secure and that is therefore able to act without fear in the midst of a broken and distorted world. In the face of threat and terror, the wife here is able to not give in to a simplification of the meaning of her sex that is something in terms of outward appearance but also not to reject her sex as unimportant but to acknowledge the goodness of her husband's authority. And the husband is able to see his wife as a partner in prayer and an equal in the kingdom without that being uh, making her a threat so that his strength becomes an opportunity for service rather than exploitation. Okay, let me conclude what has been a fairly long talk. We live our lives as men and women amongst cultural stories about what it means to be a man or a woman that are never perfect and sometimes very bad. For some, this is not particularly troubling because either because they fit in without too much trouble or because these stories work to their advantage. For others, though, these stories and stereotypes create real frustration, either because they they create a sense of alienation from one's own body or because they feel like they squash us, constraining us from fulfilling our potential. The Bible shows us that we are right to feel uncomfortable about many aspects of our cultural accounts of gender. And yet the Bible also holds us back from abandoning these cultural accounts completely because underneath it all, there really is something that is good and important, the reality of male-female difference. Humanity's twofoldness in creation is good and so it is not surpassed by God's kingdom as if it was just a passing necessity that can now be dispensed with. In Jesus we see clear confirmation that what God declared in the beginning to be good, it really is good and it deserves to be respected. But although it is good, it's not the most important thing. It's not the most important thing about us because those who have faith in Jesus are first and foremost no longer men and women but children of God in Christ and heirs of the kingdom. And this is the key to a beautiful freedom in relation to our gender. Freedom to welcome our gender as a gift and an invitation to a particular kind of contribution rather than resenting it as an imposition. But also freedom not to be intimidated and imprisoned 
by those aspects of our culture that reduce the meaning of our sex something less than the beautiful version of humanity that it truly is. And this, it seems to me, is the kind of freedom that is really worth having. For real freedom is found not in rejecting reality, but in embracing it. And the reality is that the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to live and rejoice in being men and women because we know that more than being men and women, we have been made children of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it speaks to us uh, about things that are difficult for us to hear but that it, it contains a message of profound freedom in your son Jesus Christ. Lord, there are undoubtedly things that we still need to work out the answers to and we pray that you'll lead us and guide us in that. And we pray that we would live lives that express both the the radical equality we have uh, learnt of in your son Jesus and also the goodness of being men and women. We ask that you would help us to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name.